record. And we are on. All right, well, good evening, men. We have a few guys still coming, but well, we're going to go ahead and get started. So let me, uh, first let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our opportunity to discuss uh, how, to, how to know your scriptures, how to communicate them, teach them. Lord, um, we, we thank you for them. So often take for granted that we, you've given us scripture. We have it. We possess it. Um, we communicate to know. Uh, he wants to know you. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to be men that communicate uh, so that people can know you as well. Amen. All righty. Um, so a uh, little housekeeping as we uh, get started. Uh, hey, Chris, there's some notes back there in the back, in the, in the corner, or on the back table, sorry. Um, is uh, in light of our discussion last, as we were discussing last week, a lot of you guys, half the class was going to be gone over a particular week, so I adjusted online, you'll see on the hub, kind of the schedule. Uh, we'll do six classes and not seven. The sixth class, uh, the, this class, which was going to be tonight, I wrote that already and put it online. Um, if anybody wants a hard copy of that class, I can get you a hard copy of it. Just after class, let me know, and I'll print you out one. But there's a digital copy on there. Uh, that was on, it was going to be a class on canonicity, which was kind of just covering how we got the scriptures, covering more details about the scriptures, kind of historically, um, development of that and all that. So good good material for us to understand if we're going to teach the Bible, but I figured if I've got to skip one class, I can give you that one to read, and we can kind of get into more of the nuts and bolts and kind of the, the study and understanding and communicating part, which is probably what you took the class for anyway, all right? So... Um, so that'll be available. It's on the hub. If you want a hard copy, let me know at the end of this meeting, and I'll print that class out for you. Okay? Um, for tonight, as we start, so we're jumping into the study of the scriptures. We'll look at that. Uh, before we do so, uh, one of the assignments I gave to you was uh, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so each, each time we get together, I wanted to give you um, an assignment to kind of do during the week. Uh, hey, Joe, there's, a, there's some packets right back there for you. Um, is to kind of read through some like this. Uh, I know it, it goes, some of the language is a little bit old for you uh, at times, but uh, one of my goals is I want you to kind of see, A, different communication styles, um, but also uh, learn, learn some things uh, from, from these guys. So this one is from Jonathan Edwards. Probably all have heard of it before or maybe even read it before. Um, it is good to read it, read it again. But uh, just kind of some feedback on, on the sermon itself as you read through it. It's been... Some have proposed that it's sort of an argument historically that, that Edwards read this in a monotone voice, um, you know, is, uh, is what some argue or some say happened. Uh, he wasn't the most dynamic of speakers in general. Uh, someone like a George Whitfield was a much more fiery, passionate guy, but Edwards was more, edu- more, of, a, more of a scholar, I guess you'd say. He'd be more of an educator uh, than he would necessarily be a, a preacher, per se, but he, um, nonetheless, he was great at... At pictures, right? In terms of creating pictures, and so what are some of the thoughts? Kind of taking back, not necessarily content. We're not. I'm not really examining content per se. I just wanted to, to, to kind of look at method. Obviously, we can't we can't hear him speak, but just kind of how he how he put it together. What are some of your thoughts? Some of the things you saw. <clears throat> First of all, paint this. Hmm? I use the word terrifying. Yep. Picture of hell. Right. And then after he's done that, he says, this could be you. Mm-hmm. He and so, said, no, well, he said, 
This is you. Right. And, and there's our, there's our is you. three of our things I want you to notice right there, right? The, one of them is the word pictures, the vivid nature that he creates. So the imagine, if you can capture the imagination of your hearers and have them see, and even more, if you can get them not to see it, but feel it. <laughs> Edwards has a way of having, not only you see it, but you can feel it, right? And how he uses his yeah. words. And so, yeah. so there's that image part, the feeling part of, of, of what, he, what he painted. But then also, you mentioned there the part of the second person, right? And he goes after him, you. You know, we talked about the difference in kind of preaching and kind of a lecture or teaching. Your, your preaching is going to have, not that you can't ever use a we or an us, you know, language, but there is a sense of authority that comes along with that, and we are to preach the word with authority, as, as the scriptures tell us in, in uh, 1 Timothy. And so, go ahead. No. Well, I noticed, like, you know, in the first, because he was making through his eight point, nine, nine points, it was, it was, it was they and them, yep. right, kind of like talking about sinners, and then he turns the switch, and it's like you. Yep. And so then it's like, like as if they were off the hook because they're sitting in church, and then he's like, by the way... Think of, now, now think about how Jesus. Think about how Jesus taught. You remember the um, the parable. I think it was the, the tenants, where he's talking about they're taking care of the vineyard, and they would send the, the king would dispatch someone to to come, you know, and they'd kill him, and then finally he sent his son. Remember that? And they yeah. killed him. And remember Jesus just telling the story, and all of a sudden he goes, "And that was you." You know, and it was like, "Well, hold on, we were just along for the ride." You know, oh, okay, story, story, and then oh wait a minute, that's me, and that's the way. You know, Jesus taught many times, you know, when he would make those connections, tell those stories, and would kind of bring it in at the end. And it was like, wait a minute, he was talking about me the whole time. Sort of one you, which was actually a scriptural reference in the first three pages. Yep. And then that last paragraph, page four, will circle me 25 times. Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there, there's that, it's almost like a, we call it like a hook. You kind of just bring them along in the story, and they're going along with you, and all of a sudden you kind of bring it home, as it were, or... My, well, my professor used to always say you, you put the cookies down on the bottom, bottom, bottom shelf so everybody can reach in and get one, and so you just dump them out and they all can grab them. You just right to them. Yeah. But, but two thirds of the sermon was like application, like bringing it home. Yeah. Right. I, I've read it before, but you read this, you, you come away pierced to the heart, even after what two hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, at least two hundred, two fifty. Yeah. And so you, um, you know, one of the things with, you mentioned the outline, I was kind of chuckling a little bit, the eight or nine points, yeah. typical Puritan fashion is they would, we'll talk about this later when we get to outlining, I'm more of a simple outline person, I don't even like to do subpoints unless I absolutely have to, Puritans were like infamous for, I mean their title, I don't know if you ever I read the official, a lot of times there's little Puritan paperback books, and they'll have like, you know, the, the jewel of Christian's content or whatever, it's like a really simple little title in our published version, if you go to the original Version, it's like three sentences long. Like their titles were three sentences long. So I mean, they were they were known to to lay it out there in terms of a lot of uh, a lot of outlining and content in that way. Precision. Yeah. It's almost like you get this. There was a. It was a. a, a I just had the word and I lost it. But there's a there's a compare and contrast. It's but it's almost like this yearning is like. The devil yearns for your soul, but the Spirit of God and His grace will yearn for it even mm. more and mm. overcome. But it's like this, you almost see this struggle. Yep. And again, and not just see it, you feel it. You feel it. See, that, that's, that's the power behind the Edward Sermon is that you feel what he's saying. You know, he doesn't just paint the picture. He has a way of using words in a way that kind of, mm-hmm. you can feel the tension, you can feel the struggle, you can feel the pull. I like the way he even, even said, once you're in hell... 
you'll be thinking these thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, he really just, instead of saying you will be in hell, he said, right. while you're there, oh, by the way, for eternity, <laughs> you'll be yes. thinking these thoughts. And I thought, wow, he's really into the mind of, of uh, the Right, and so and that's one of the things, too, when you're communicating, if you can get into the mind of the hearer in a way that you can can even even anticipate, right? And even you can say, you know, you may be thinking this, or you may be thinking that, or if you're in this situation, you think this. So you're 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 bringing them along in that process is a powerful method as well. The other part of that, you know, so he he switches over to you about a third of the way in and starts making it personal, and then the last third, really the last page and a half, is where he really makes the appeal really strongly. I thought, and he starts using a bunch of questions, but he's really right. the appeal is, you know, you've got a day to make a decision here right now. God yeah. gives you the grace of this day. Yeah. And it really kind of leads to the point of what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. What, do, 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 what is the response to the congregation to this message? When he preached it, right. what was the response? Do, do we have a record of that? Um, I'm trying to think of the timeline of the Great Awakening in terms of where this where this okay. was on the timeline, and I don't remember actually okay. exactly where, was, if it was preliminary to the Great Awakening or if it was during it. He mentions, he mentions in here all the people in Suffield who are flocking to Christ daily. Right. Yeah. So it was already already taking place. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then his, his he wrote a, he, well, I won't get into that. That's a, that's, I wasn't getting into church history stuff, and that's not our point right now. <laughs> Good. You know, yeah. the, other, the other takeaway I had, I had read this before, and, and it, it really remembered a lot of Hellfire Brimstone, but. It really is dripping with grace as well. Mm-hmm. Just the just the sovereignty and grace. Mm-hmm. It's it's always here's where you are, but you know you're standing on the platform. It's all God. Right. It's kind of like what you're being Jared was saying. The spirit. Yeah. The spirit's yearning too, though, right? So there's this this element of hope. There's hope yeah. given, right? Yeah. A lot of times the you know the hellfire brimstone idea of Edward Sermon is missed. That yes, there is. Yeah. But it's not that, that that all he was was just trying to s- just simply terrify them and leave them with no hope, right? I mean, the whole, as you said, the very end, he's bringing provision of hope, you know, throughout that. Right. And that's, you know, in, in preaching, you, you, you have, it's really easy to make people feel guilty. I mean, I mean, all I got to get up here and go like, you need to pray more. You need to evangelize. I mean, I, I, mean, I could drop a lot of guilt and that's pretty easy to do. The hard thing to do is drop the guilt, but then bring bring hope along with along with that. And so you haven't completed that if you don't bring some sort of resolution or hope to the to the guilt in which they're feeling in that process. All right, very good. All right. Um, well, we'll get into our our notes for tonight. Um, we talk about some of the the uh, aspects of of uh, teaching and preaching scripture. We talk about um, what I call the science and the art side of. And so the science part is what we're going to dive into tonight. And the science part is, uh, if you can imagine, um, to use an analogy of, uh, of, a, of a, a, a diver, okay? Let's say that you have a diver who is uh, searching for, you know, pearls. He's going, to, he's going to sell those as well. The, the science part would be the equipment that he uses, the tools that he gets down to the bottom the, to pry it open and get all the materials and bring them back to the shoreline, right? That's all the science part. He's gathering all the stuff. When he gets back and he has to clean it up, he has to put it into the display case, he has to go to the market and he has to sell it, that's the art side. That's the display side. So when we talk about these parts, we're talking about the science part is the digging. 
we're digging, what are the tools we need to use, how do we find it, uh, the pearls as it were, and then we again later we talk about how do we present it in a way that to use the to use the same analogy, they want to buy it. You know, they they want to buy this pearl because it's been it's been presented in a way that's winsome. So so tonight we're getting into the uh, to the science part of that. All right. So with that, and again, as you guys have questions, uh, feel free to, to shoot them at me. So let's talk about preparation for a moment. Um, how do we prepare uh, to study the Bible? This is uh, just under the the understanding that we've uh, we've come to Christ. We've been given the Spirit of God. And uh, as we as we get into that, we talk about our first, and we'll talk about this quite a few times. Is uh, is is prayer? This is just understanding without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how insightful and creative and all those things. Without the Spirit of God, we will not understand properly the Scriptures. Right? I mean, you go to you go to passages in in, uh, in John's Gospel, John fourteen through sixteen. You find over and over again how the Spirit of God has been given to us to to understand the Scriptures, to reveal Christ. In so many ways, it becomes black words on white paper without the Spirit of God actually opening our eyes to see that. So we always need to keep that in mind uh, from beginning. We'll talk about this from right at the very beginning all the way through the process until the end, even in preaching. Um, and maybe you've experienced this before. But like when I'm when I'm preaching, I it's 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 kind of hard to explain. It's almost like I have two two brains, two minds going on. I'm I'm thinking on one side of what I'm saying, at the same time I'm talking to God at the same time. And so it's that kind of process that takes place from the beginning with me all the way to the very end until it's done. Is prayer is always a part of that process um, as we walk through. The um, one of the things that uh, uh, an acronym and this acronym doesn't really make any sense. IOUS, but it was something that John Piper did, uh, put together. It's real simple. It's something that I I picked up probably 15 years ago, and then I've used it ever since then. And it's just, it's three psalms, which you'll see up on the screen. And they're all from, from um, so you have the, the I, and this is kind of the process I go through. You may hear this when I preach on a Sunday. A lot of times, right, I pray right before I, I preach, and you'll hear me say these kind of words. It all comes from this. Um, so the Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies. First thing I'm asking God when I open up the scriptures is, God, make me want, right? God, make, make me want to know you. Make me want to know you. That's what I want. I mean, I, I, I don't always have the want to. You know, on any given, week, any given week when I'm kind of studying scriptures to, to preach or teach or whatever else, you, it, it, I'd like to say that, man, I just always just, just really want to do it. <laughs> just not always there, right? And so I'm um, asking God to incline my heart. The O is to open my eyes. Psalm 119.18, I want God to open my eyes to be able to see. I realize again, without the Spirit of God, I will not understand the Scriptures. I need Him to open my eyes. The U is unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86.11. And that's again, just kind of removing the distractions. God, unite my heart. Make it focused in here. We'll talk about in, in a little bit some of the process. Of that, and then Psalm ninety verse fourteen is just satisfy us with your steadfast love. So, so I go through that process, and I'm asking God as I'm approaching the scriptures. God, make me want it. Open my eyes; I can't see it without you. You know, remove the distractions. Make my heart unified around what's in front of me. And then, God, the whole when all this is said and done, I want I want to be satisfied with you. I don't want to just know information. I don't want to just know facts. I don't want to just know some, you know, tidbit of information I can share with somebody. I, I want to be satisfied with you. 
Because if I'm not filled up with God, then I don't really have anything to overflow and pour out in someone else's life. Okay? So it's just kind of a little acronym. I just, I just, it's always, it's always in my mind um, on a consistent basis in the middle of the, the preaching and teaching part. Uh, letter B, confess. This is just simply uh, being transparent with God, asking Him to give me uh, perseverance and humility. Those are two things I'm asking for. Perseverance, help me not quit. Because there'll be times where you're studying Scripture and you're like, man, either A, you don't really have a heart to want to do it, or B, you just hit a roadblock and you don't know the answer. It's just frustrating. God, give me, give me the perseverance. Help me not to, be, help me not to quit uh, in this way. And to give me the humility to know that I need to stick with it. Right? I, I, need, I need this. I need to push through the wall. I need to work hard on this. Uh, and then letter C is just, I would call it reorient. This is just uh, gain perspective of what we're doing. Every time we're approaching the scripture, I've got to remind myself. I was having this conversation this morning um, with someone that, you know, Martin Luther's statement, he said, uh, he said, religion is the deep default of the human heart. And what he meant by that is that every day we wake up, it's almost like we default back again to, okay, what do I need to do to make God okay with me? What do I need to do to, you know, to have God's face shine on me? What, what, what methods, what hoops I need to jump through? It's just a default mode we just jump into. And I got to come back and reset, reorient, and go like, okay, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this to to prove to God. I'm not doing this to earn favor with God. And so I got to just reorient my thinking all the time. And it's a, it's just a lifelong struggle that we're going to have, and we're going to face. And so it's just remembering that, so that then we can turn around and teach others. So the first thing we want to do is is uh, is benefit our own hearts, so that we have something to give, and then turn around. And, uh, and then be able to teach that to others as well. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Okay? All right. Number two. Steps. This is just kind of a flyover, and then we'll look at each one. This is kind of tip. This is the Bible study method 101. Um, we'll kind of work through some of this. Uh, we have uh, letter A. We have observation. Uh, this is simply asking the question, what do you see? What do you see? And I could tell you, that I think, I think, personally, this is probably the most important step. This is what's going to make your teaching of the scriptures be much more uh, insightful and much more um, um, maybe pliable or, or receivable by other people, is this step. Okay? And, and this is the one that easily is skipped over quickly. We quickly want to jump to our next one, interpretation. You know, what does it mean? Before we go to the observation stage, we've got to camp out here. If you want to have a fruitful... Uh, be able to communicate fruitfully, you've got to observe and see things that are there. And so that's the first one, is our observation. Um, obviously, the error we talked about last week, we want to avoid. Uh, we don't want to do eisegesis. We want to do exegesis. We don't want to, we don't want to import. Eisegesis is kind of putting in, uh, lead into, as opposed to lead out. We want, to, we want to take out of the scriptures. We don't want to import our own ideas into it, so we want to be careful in that process. Uh, interpretation. Letter B is asking the question, what does it mean? Uh, again, we're, we're, what we're going after in this stage is we're going after what did the original writers intend? Okay, What did the original recipients understand? And this is why, we'll, why that part is important. The history and understanding what's going on in that time will help me to properly interpret it. Because it was written in a time period, in a situation, and we need to know what was going on. So we need to know the... The, the questions, the issues the writers are dealing with, um, 
and what's going on with them before we ask the question about our context, right? We got to know their context first before we try to jump to ours, which will get into our application. Okay, and then and then letter C application. This is simply a twofold question: How does this passage apply to the original readers, and then how does it apply to my life? So we're always thinking: What is what did the original writer? What was he thinking? Who was he writing to? How would they receive this? How would they apply this? Okay, now how do how do I apply this, and how do we apply this? So we, the you know, typically, unfortunately, a lot of times people run to this one first. They read a passage and be like, "Oh, this means myth, you know, this this is applicable to me in this way," without doing any of the work that's required. You're going to teach it a lot of work up front for that. So, so dur- during this um, process, and we'll go to number three. I was going to show you. So what I typically do, and this is just kind of my method. You can use whatever method you want. Um, so I'll go in, so if I get a passage, let's just say, um, let's just say like I had this morning I quoted Ephesians 4. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, let's say. And it talks about how God gave the church pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry, and it goes on. If I'm going to preach that passage, what I'm going to do, if I'm going to start this whole process, is I'm going to go, I use the Bible Hub app. It's a just online app with the Bible. I'll go in there, and I'll copy and paste that section. I'll open up a Word document and dump it in. And then I'll just take a verse, take one verse, verse 11, and then I'll just dump some space in between it, verse 12, space, and I'll just kind of keep doing that. And so I have it all kind of laid out. I'll start off at the top with, um, uh, typically with mine, as I start this process, we'll start with a, you know, I'll, I'll just write this at the top, and then I'll have the outline and the conclusion, and then the, the meat of it's right in here. And so I'll just write these, these outlines out, this kind of major outlines, just to, not, not that I'm starting with these, I just want them in there as I think of stuff. I usually have a pad of paper, you know, kind of like if you have there, like a legal pad, that I'm kind of jotting things on the side. But for this, what I'm doing is as I start with going each, I go one verse at a time, and I just want to start the process of observing. And I'm just kind of going through, asking the text questions we'll talk about in a second, asking what am I seeing here, and just recording all my information. One of the things important to know, and you may already experience this, you will always find more in the scriptures than you're able to communicate. You've got to be careful that you don't try to dump everything you've learned. Because sometimes it'd be exciting, like, yeah, I learned this, I learned that, and it's just overwhelming to the hearer because it's a little scattered because it's just a lot of information. And so, so what you'll find in this process of the study part is you're going to have a lot of stuff you're going you're gonna to learn and a lot of neat things you're going to find and observations That'll be for your benefit. That may not be for your hearer's benefit because you may not bring it to the table. We'll talk about later, kind of deciphering what goes what goes in, what doesn't. But anyway, this process is kind of I'm just going through and just writing almost like a little my own little commentary, just everything I can find. Even maybe there's sometimes bullet points underneath, uh, and kind of working through that process is, is is how I go about that. All right. So um, go back here. All right, how do we practice observation? Okay, so this is uh, where we want to examine, search, inspect. Uh, we don't want to skip this process. It takes time. Uh, it takes time to do this. Uh, it takes patience to walk through this process uh, of, of observing what's in the text. Uh, one of our uh, key observations, we want to shed the old familiarity, familiarity, can't even say it, with the text. Okay, so you want to, you want to make sure... You don't approach a text and go like, yeah, I've studied this before. Oh, yeah, I know, I know what Paul's talking about. Or I know what Peter's talking about. I know what, know what the situation is. 
and just move on to something maybe you don't know in the passage. You've got to kind of come back to it almost as it were the clean slate and go like, okay, let me observe this from the beginning. Let me look, like, look at this like I've never looked at it before and begin that process of going through it in that way. So with fresh eyes, uh, and also don't skim over sections uh, that you don't understand, right? So don't, don't jump over those and be like, well, those are way too difficult. Let's just move on to the stuff I really know. Um, and so you want to work through that, okay? So, simple steps. Letter A, read the text, okay? Read it. Read it. We want to read it. Uh, when we read it, we want to read it slowly. I think just kind of taking that process and going through and reading the text, read it out loud, is, can be helpful uh, to yourself, uh, wherever you're at in your study. Uh, read it repeatedly. Uh, sometimes, especially if, you, if you're... Uh, teaching and yet you, you're having to work and you're driving to your job, man, the audio Bible is a great option to throw it in, you know, and on your, on, uh, you can download those and have an audio Bible go in of your passage and just have it on repeat. Just keep reading, just listen to it being read. You'll be surprised. Um, a lot of times I, it's probably not the, the safest thing to do, but I, I'll, I'll be doing that and I'll, I'll think of something as, it, as it's being read audibly. I'll be like, oh, I got to write that down. And I'll probably pull over to do that. I probably should, but I, I record it. I write it down when I get to a stop sign or stoplight. <laughs> but, I mean, just there's all kinds of stuff. I do it, I mean, at nighttime I find this. If you just kind of keep saturating yourself with that passage and keep reading it, even in the middle of the night, I mean, I'll wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I'll have the passage running through my head. And sure enough, I've got, you know, ideas coming to my head. i got a notepad next to my, my, uh, my bedstand there. And I, you know, reach out and I start writing thoughts down. I've had some great, great uh, moments of clarity and understanding at two o'clock in the morning that uh, God just kind of wakes me up and gives me that. Yeah. Quickly point out, I had a coworker that said he did that with ideas for work. He's got over a hundred patents. A hundred patents? Patents. Just putting the notepad next to his bed. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Same thing you do. Yeah. But, I mean, I just, I just find it. The more I'm saturate my mind with it during the week. The, you just find that the Spirit of God is just kind of just using that throughout throughout the day. Um, read with emotion, passion as you as you go through it. Um, read it how you think that the original readers would have listened to it or heard it, um, and then read the entire book if possible. And sometimes, if you're in a large, you know, if you're in the middle of Exodus, you may not be able to read the whole entire book. But read read a, a good chunk of it so you constantly. We're talking about this later, like real estate. You know, it's location, location, location. And studying the Bible is context, 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 right? It's all about what's what happens before, what happens after. So just kind of getting yourself out of that. If you're in a smaller section of Scripture you're studying to present it, you got to kind of pull back a little bit and see the big picture and read that if possible. All right? Um, so as you read, as I said here earlier, record your observations. Again, if you do that on a notepad, if you want to do that in a Word document, uh, some some apps or... Online tools like Bible.com and others have like notes ingrained already. You can actually go in and digitally kind of put your notes uh, in there. You can highlight in those apps and in those online uh, parts. Um, don't be afraid as you as you go through that. Um, you record observations. I mean, I've got lots of different Bibles I've gone through because I've just marked them up pretty significantly to where now they're not quite legible enough to use, and so I have to move on to new ones. And so just. Don't be afraid to kind of write and, and circle and, and, and do stuff even within your, your text there. Uh, connect your thoughts. Again, underline, circle, um, you know, move arrows around, you know, kind of point things, how these things connect. 
if, if you don't want to write in your Bible, print it, get printed off and do it on a piece of paper yourself and kind of write it up and draw it up uh, in that way. It will be helpful. Uh, trace the flow of thought um, or the flow of logic and train of thought. Uh, a lot of times um, this process can be done by, by rewording what's said. So if you read a passage and um, step back and go, okay, here's, you know, even, to, even as you're, and this is a conversation having with God, right? This is what I, people probably think I'm crazy in my office because they hear me talking and there's no one in there. It's just, I'm just talking to God all the time. We're just having, I'm having this conversation. I'm just saying he's talking to me. But I am asking a lot of questions with silence afterwards. Of this, you know, God, I think it says this, but you're saying this, and this is what he means. And so we're just, we're going around in circles, as it were. But you're kind of re-summarizing. All right, here's what I believe Paul is saying in this passage, and reword it in your own words um, for clarity and kind of working through. Uh, relate each paragraph to its surrounding paragraphs. Again, the context of putting those things together. Um, and then summarize the main idea of each paragraph in your own words. Okay, so as you're reading, you're kind of just putting those into place. Um, again, I find rewording is helpful of a verse. If I've kind of gone through this and observed things, go back and put it in my own language and words uh, to summarize that. Um, ask questions to be interested. This is uh, the who, what, when, where, how stuff. So these are some of the questions I'm asking as I'm approaching a book, so uh, approaching a passage. So who's the author? Okay. Author is important. We believe in, we'll talk about this later in terms of hermeneutics, we believe in a, a historical interpretation of Scripture, literal, grammatical, historical. The historical part, we believe that the writer is important, if, if we can know that writer. Sometimes, sometimes we don't know the writer. Um, we don't know who it is, like in the book of Hebrews, for example, which we'll, we'll be teaching that on Sunday morning starting in the fall. But we don't, we're not sure who the author is. But we know things about the author. We can pull things from the book itself and understand the author and where he's coming from and style and everything else. So understanding the author is, is, is can be very uh, very important in that way. Um, who's the author talking to? So now I want to know not only the author himself, I want to know who this letter is to. If it's a, new, if it's a letter to the New Testament or if it's Old Testament, who's it written to? Uh, main, the main characters in the text, who, who is this about? Um, Who's the author talking about? What's the subject uh, of the text? Um, and so, if we, we go through that, we're asking we're asking different ones. You know, who's the who's the author talking about? What's the subject? Um, you know, if I go to if I jump into Matthew five through seven, where we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I need to know who who is he addressing? Who is the people he's talking to? What's the point of that sermon? Why is he communicating that? Um, what happens next in the text? Again, put into your own words. More questions to ask here. What words or phrases are repeated? Um, repetition is good. We'll talk about this a lot too. Uh, if you go to a good example, of this would be Genesis chapter one, right? It, you see the repetition of good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And all of a sudden, it says what? Not good. It's not good that man's alone. You're like, whoa. Okay, that that should jump off the page at me because there's a something that's been repeated over and over again, and it just changed. So that's a, obviously a major major point is being made. Um, with that, I say this on Sundays a lot, but what does the author not say? I think it's one of the best ways to observe uh, what's going on there. What did he not say? What could he have said? What if he had said this and not this? And that, that just, there, there's an endless amount of information that you can gather in that, right? What did he not say uh, in, in this particular way? And so, you know, when, 
So when Jesus is arrested in the garden, and Peter, you know, breaks out the, the, little, the little knife and cuts the ear off, you know, of Malchus, and, you know, what did Jesus not do that he could have done? You know, well, Jesus could have let Peter at him, you know. Um, Jesus could have gotten mad at Peter and said, you know, you know Peter, you're being foolish or whatever. He, and what did he do? Instead, he reached down and he put the ear back on. Like, okay, that's, that's a pretty radical thing of, like I said this morning, I said there's a lot of things I thought I would say to James and John and, you know, their mom. There's a lot of kind of responses that I could think of that I would have after I've explained myself over and over again. All my responses, I, he didn't have that response. He simply asked graciously a question. He patiently walked with them, right? So that's why you're always asking, what does it not say? Um, especially as it relates, we talk about relating to our own experience, even as sinners, especially when you're contrasting the person of Christ. You'd be like, okay, in my not-so-great moments, here's how I probably would have responded. <laughs> but Jesus didn't respond that way, right? So we're just kind of taking that. People can relate to that. They understand that part. Uh, when do the events in the text occur? Um, you know, so First Peter, for example, when when Peter's writing, honor the emperor, you know, and saying things like that in First Peter, they're like, well, that, okay, that's a that's a fact, that's a a command. But the, but when it was written is important because right if you go start start study the history, we find that well in that period we had the emperor was crucifying Christians and lighting them on fire and put them as part of his garden, right, for entertainment purposes. So now that brings a lot more weight to your hearers to hear, hey, not just honor the emperor, but understand what was going on when he said that. That brings a lot more weight behind that command other than just, hey, go honor the people in authority, go honor them. You know, if you give that background, you go like, wow, if they were told to honor the emperor, he was doing that, how much, how much easier should it be for me honor, right? So that that's what you're always thinking. You're asking, what, when do the events occur? Because that does matter in a given situation. Uh, where's the activity or discussion taking place? Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer. Read Jonah 2. It's a prayer. Where is that prayer at? It's in the fish, right? So the, the context of where that, where that prayer is taking place is like, well, that's pretty significant and interesting. That's probably different than any other prayer in the Bible in terms of where it's taking place at. Um, and so you kind of are, are looking inside. In, in that prayer, he mentions three different times he talks about the temple in this short little prayer. What is he doing? He's looking back to, that's a, a sign of repentance. That's where God's presence was. That's where he wanted, he was repenting. You can see it by his desire to want to be there. So th- those are all parts you want to be looking at as well. And again, where was the, the, re- the letter written from? Um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul was writing from where? He was writing in a prison, right? He was in a prison. And so you can go back and start doing the study of going, okay, that's not like modern-day prisons with like a television, you know, and everything else inside there in the weight room and <coughs> physical activity. I mean, this was, this was brutal. I mean, this was basically a, a sewer, you know, he was in. So you can paint that picture for your audience to go, let me tell you what he's writing. He's saying these things, rejoice the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you're thinking, okay, Paul's telling us to rejoice. Can I tell you where he was at when he said this? And that, again, brings weight to what the command is. It's not just saying, here's what it says, but you're giving observations of background to help the audience go, well, if, okay, that, that brings a little more weight to it, of where he's from and what, what his situation is uh, in saying what he did. Uh, why, uh, why was this text written? Um, 
Why was it written? You know, understanding that process uh, as well. So Galatians, for example. Why was Galatians written? Well, we can look and observe that the reason Galatians was written is because uh, they had wandered away, or these Judaizers were in there, and they were seizing really the gospel, and grace was being, being robbed. And Paul was writing to correct that whole process and confront that group of people. Uh, he talks about in chapter 3, they've been bewitched, you know, by these Judaizers. And so you understand why that was written will help in understanding the context and keep that focus as you go through that book and any given passage there. Uh, why did the individuals uh, do what they did? Um, you know, when Galatians 2.10, when, when um, the, the command there was for Paul to, um, you know, to remember the poor, you know, was part of the command when he was commissioned out of, of uh of Jerusalem, and he went to Macedonia and different areas. Well, why did he say that? Why was that part of his mission? Was he supposed to remember the poor? Because that was their situation. There was famine, uh, there was plagues, there was all kinds of things that were going on. There was poverty in those areas. That's why in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he talks about how radical it was that the churches in Macedonia gave and sacrificed to help you know, the church um, back in Jerusalem. That was a big deal because they were, they were poor themselves. All of that, you're not going to get that by the average person who's sitting out there is not going to understand that part. You've got to bring that to them. In order to do that, you have to ask the question uh, of the text in that way. All right, how, how will it happen? A lot of times in your prophetic books, you're asking that question. Um, how will this take place? Um, how does this passage point to Jesus? As we'll, we'll get to later and why that's important. We always want to ask that question um, is again not just provide the guilt, but provide the hope and the and the, the grace that goes along with that. All right. Any questions on that? Um, Jewish history and Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is not in the Bible. Right. Um, and the more I've studied, and the more I, um, well, the more I've studied it, it, it's almost as if I'm I'm reading my Bible for the first time again. Mm-hmm. And do you ever include any of that? It's not in the Bible, but yeah. it's historical. It, well, does, that, it, does it support any of your sermons and you include it, or do you leave that out if it's not in the Bible? No, it, it, no I don't, because it, I mean, I, I do include those things, because again, we talk about, later we talk about interpretation. We believe in a historical, grammatical mm-hmm. uh, interpretation of Scripture. So we believe that it's important, the first thing we need to know is what did this writer mean by right. what he said to that particular audience, and how did that audience receive what he said? So I'm trying to get myself into their sandals, as it were. What, how, why is he saying this? How would they see it? In order to do that, I've got to understand the setting and the background, and so those things are really helpful to set it into context, and then I can pull back and go, okay, now what does that mean for 21st century, right? So yeah, the history of it is really important. That's why a lot of times... I've never been to Israel myself. Um, my wife has, you know, and she'll all the time read something. She'll be like, oh, yeah, I, was, I was there, and she'll kind of explain it, and she'll have a whole unique perspective of it because she's been there, and she's seen the land, she's seen the place. You know, those, those are helpful in the history part. Again, if we didn't believe in historical interpretation of Scripture, that history didn't matter, then it wouldn't make a difference, right? But we do, and that's part of our conviction about the Scriptures and our approach to it is that the history of it does matter. Um, because it was written to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. And it's, it's transcultural, meaning it, it, it applies to our culture, not just theirs, but we've got to understand theirs first.
So yes, that, that part is important. And so you'll find that I mean, your, your, your Bibles, uh, your study Bibles will have some good background information on those. Uh, there's Bible dictionaries and things that you can find. Um, I would say be careful, like, you know, Wikipedia, like searching stuff on there. And that's not always the most accurate of information. Um, I mentioned before the, the commentary series by that William uh, Barclay, the guy who's, it's funny enough, I, was, I read a little bit of him from Matthew 20 this week. And I was reading, I was going, there he is, with that bad theology again. Because he was reading something, he, he doesn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, or at least, no, he doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He thinks there's errors. And so you'll, you'll find that when you read him sometimes. He'll be like, you know, it says this, but probably what was really, you know, the recipients probably changed it or whatever. So he, he has bad theology on that side, but man, his history is really good. Um, in terms of just, he, he's Jewish history kind of historian. So he really provides a lot of good information that helps understand the context in that way. You mentioned study Bibles. Do you, mm-hmm. do you use a study Bible or do you recommend study Bibles as we go through? I know that yeah. different ones are better than others. Right. And so, yeah, so what are the, uh, I'm, what I love about doing this for you now is I'm, I'm trying to bring my mind back to when I first started, right? It's been 20 years now I've been, been doing this. And when I first started, I mean, study Bibles were my go-to. <laughs> Those were good because that was easy. It's, it was in one, that was before we had the, the content now online, but um, it's one book, has everything there, and so it's an easy reference for me instead of having a large library of commentaries. Um, so yeah, the study Bibles are really helpful tools. Um, you know, the the MacArthur Study Bible is really good, with a lot of good background. We talk about background information, really good background stuff. Uh, the ESV Study Bible is really good with background. Both the, <coughs> funny enough, the MacArthur Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible, a lot of my professors that I had in seminary, wrote a lot of the commentary in both of those, um, both of those study Bibles. So I kind of, I lean that way because that's kind of where those two groups of people is where I kind of learned a lot from. So those are kind of my two. There's a lot of other ones out there that can be helpful. But in terms of like wanting to to teach the scriptures, there's a lot of them out there, like life application ones and things like that that can be helpful. But if you really want to teach it, I mean, those two are really good materials, and they won't. They should guide you pretty pretty faithfully. Um, you know, there's not a lot there to debate in terms of their their information is pretty solid. I, I trust it pretty much with those two. Is that the name of it? Just ESV study. Yeah, Bible? ESV study Bible. Okay. Yeah, and there's you know, I have to ask Eddie and Justin. Eddie and Justin are a little younger than me, and they 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 are kind of I feel old, right? As if I'm, I'm like yeah, right. I'm like 15 years old, 10 years old, or 15 years older than them. But but they. They, they're always going, hey, there's this new study Bible. I'm like, I, I just stick with the old. <laughs> you know, I feel all right. I, at the ESV and the and MacArthur, what else do I need, you know? And so the, there's all kinds of new ones that have come out, apparently, that are really good that I don't even know what they are. But those two guys know more about that um, newer study Bible references. I think there was, um, you know, the Reformation one, I think. There's a Reformation study Bible that came out a few years ago. I think it was pretty good. Something came out with the Southern Baptists, and I can't, the Holman group did something in the study Bible recently that apparently was really good, but I just... Thoughts on the Faith Life Study Bible by Logos? Does that ring a bell? No. Okay. And so that's the other thing, too, with me, is I, I don't do anything digitally, either. Like, I don't do Logos, I don't do any of those things. Unfortunately for me, it was one of those things I... I I was right at that cutoff line of technology when I was learning and did all my education. I bought all these books, did everything with with books, studied, learned Greek and Hebrew with books, and then all of a sudden this flood of information came out with Logos and all these digital things, and 
I was too far and I was too far invested into the hardback <laughs> to uh, to go digital. And so um, there's a you know there's a lot of good tools in those places that mm-hmm. probably is a lot easier to access than I feel archaic in some ways because I just I just do books. You know. hey, yeah. Chris, at what point did you start to incorporate that? I found sometimes if I use those too early, I may not. I may miss out some of what the words say, right? And let that... Don't use it at first. Yes. And what I mean by... I mean, I mean, I'm being really sincere on that one. Like, if if you use it too early, if you go to it immediately, so if you just read a passage, you immediately go down and read notes of a study Bible, whatever else, this observation stage, you're going to miss a lot. You're just going to miss a lot of things that... The joy for you of learning yourself and having God sh- you know, pick out things and see things and observe things... It's neat to go back and then read the notes and be like, yeah, that's exactly what I saw. Wonderful. That's a, you'll find that it fuels your tank a lot more than, than having the opposite where you're just kind of just early on, you know, when I first started, I, I, I leaned a, I did a very little observation. I tried and it was kind of hard because I didn't have a wealth of information to draw from. So I had my little observations I would do with my, my little notes. And, you know, a sentence or two, and then I would go and read the commentaries and stuff and fill it all up with information. And now it's the opposite where, I mean, sometimes I don't even go to the commentaries now. Um, but that's only because I've been doing it for 20 years. And so, yeah, that, I was going to mention that a little bit later, but yeah, I'll, I'll mention it again later. But that's really important is to open your Bible, get a notepad or open up a Word document, and just start taking notes for yourself. <coughs> don't underestimate. You've got the Spirit of God in you, just like anybody else who's got the Spirit of God in them. Um, and so don't underestimate what God can teach you through that. It's important to make a, a, a self-check later. Go back and check and make sure you're not diving off into the deep end of something that no one's ever said. Um, you know, we, we do sit on, you know, church history is not uh, infallible, but yet we do stand on 2,000 years of church history. And if you believe, if you come up with a passage and, and a, an interpretation of a passage that no one else has ever come up with before, you may want to be a little careful with that one. That for 2,000 years, no one's ever seen that. You know, so I mean, that... That's why it's good to check later that you don't get kind of maybe off track. But it's really, really nice to, to kind of approach it with an open Bible and just kind of take your observations first. All right, um, analyze. Let's look at this. Let her be there. Analyze the text. Um, first thing we want to we want to do, and again, this is as we're taking taking notes um, uh, during our study. First is the repetition of words. Okay, repetition of words. You can see. In your passage in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 3 through 7, what, what, is, what word do you see in that passage that just stands out? It keeps being repeated. Comfort. comfort. You can see it, you can circle it in there, and you'll see it. Comfort, 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 comfort. And so that will immediately tell me, as we're getting into a passage, and you're looking at it and going, okay, I gotta, I'm teaching this passage. Um, I'm looking for the first thing, and one thing, the first thing I'm looking for is, is there words repeated? Because if words are repeated... And that tells me that that's obviously really important to the writer. Um, and so that's where I want to go to first. I'm going to circle, I'm going to find words. And I'm not talking about like the repetition of, you know, articles <laughs> of like A and B or something. But we are talking about like words like this, like comfort. Uh, in John 1, 14 through 17, what do you see there that's repeated uh, a few times that may be important? I see grace a few times. What else do you see? 
have truth a few times. You see, I can look right there and I see grace at least four times. So I'm looking just kind of at it right now. See it four different times, you know. So again, if that's three verses four times, okay, that's an important part of that, right? Especially in the beginning of a book when a book starts off and there's, a, and there's a, some words are repeated at the very outset, that'll tell you a lot of times the, the writer's intent of this is a major theme that he wants to bring. And this is true. Grace becomes a major theme um, you know, in the Gospel of John. So always looking for those uh, repeats as you see those. Um, oh, I put them up on the screen here. All right. Uh, contrasts is another thing we want to look for. Uh, as you're looking at... At the words there, we see here Proverbs 14.31, whoever presses a poor man insults his maker, who is just the needy, honors him. So here's that, that contrast that's taking place. He's describing a person who oppresses a poor man. When he does that, he's insulting the maker, so his, his creator. He who's generous to the needy, honors him. So there's a contrast taking place between those two. A lot of times the Proverbs will have a lot of contrast there. Uh, you see Romans six twenty three, a classic contrast here. Wage of sin is death, free gift of God's eternal life. Right, that's a major contrast taking place in those two. So we're looking for those, you know, the the fours, the buts, um, those kind of things in those passages. Uh, comparisons, again, a lot of the poetry language will have these. They're comparing ideas like cold water to a thirsty soul is a good news from a far for, for country. Uh, so we're making the comparison between someone who is getting satisfied with cold water when they're thirsty, so is good news from a far country. Uh, Proverbs 25, 26, again, uh, a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Okay, so we're just looking at the different comparisons that take place. Uh, lists, you'll see this throughout scripture, different places, there's lists, one of the famous ones there is the fruit of the spirit, right, in Galatians 5.22, we see lists given, um, as, it, as it describes them there, uh, Proverbs 6, you'll see those six things, the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him, one footnote to this one, it's just kind of a, uh, I'll show you this, it, it, it sounds like really heady and smart, but it's just an observation to kind of look out for. One of the methods of writing, especially in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament in the Hebrew, was what they called chiasms. Um, and so, uh, you see it on the screen there, chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. And I'm going to show you, show you it here. What they'll do, if you ever see a list, okay, if you see a list and it's an odd number, there's a lot of times there's, this, there's a stair-step structure that the writers are doing. So, for example... If I show you these, and I, if I lined it up like this, the, the list there, seven, see the seven? So if you put those together, you'll find, you'll find comparisons. The first and the last go together, haughty eyes, strife among brothers. The second one you'll find, lying tongue, falls with two others, lies. The next one you'll see, the next two hands, feet going together. And then you'll see the middle is heart. What's well, interesting, that... That's going after what is what is it that God hates the most? It's not the just the activities. It all stems from the heart, right in the very middle of that list. So that's called a chiasm. That's a Hebrew structure. They, they like to do that a lot. You'll find that in Scripture. So when you see an odd number, just look at it and see is the first and last similar? The next two, and you may find the key to the passage maybe right in the very center, and that's the way the writer's communicating. So and that's not you know 
I'm not, I'm not getting into like hidden meanings and crazy stuff like that, but this is a, a legitimate method of writing, especially for the Hebrews and how they would write. Um, they would kind of structure those in that way. So if you see a list, you see an odd number, check out that middle. That may be the kind of the intent or the heart of the, no pun intended there, the heart of the actual passage. Uh, cause and effect, we find that uh, here in Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed, but be transformed. There's our, our buts again. We're looking at our ands, our buts, our therefores. Those are all really, really important parts of the passage. Um, figures of speech. This is, you see this a lot in the Gospels with Jesus, Jesus with his parables. Um, you see here Matthew 23, 27. They're like whitewashed tombs. Um, those are, uh, obviously, he's not saying they are whitewashed tombs. They're like whitewashed tombs. He's making a... a uh, a figure of speech. Uh, Matthew thirteen forty four. We find the treasure hidden in the field. Uh, one of the things, one of the footnotes to this, uh, if you're getting to parables, a very important principle when teaching a parable or any parable that Jesus gives, parables typically have one point. So be very careful that when you get into a parable, you don't start pulling out a lot of meaning. You know what I'm saying? There's a story being told with one one intent on it. To get lost in the little details of that parable, you sometimes can miss the kind of point of what what the what the story is, and so it's always important to remember with a, with a parable they have one point. Don't read too much into them. Uh, conjunctions again, asking what's the therefore? Therefore, so when we get to passages like Hebrews twelve one. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, obviously that hinges on chapter eleven. Chapter eleven talks about those witnesses, right? It lists off all these people who have gone before us. And so that's always important. You get to the, we mentioned this morning, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? All right, I'm going back to what did Paul say? Sometimes it could be right in the previous chapter. So like Hebrews 12, the therefore is referencing chapter 11. Well, here in Paul, when he says therefore in Romans 12, he's actually referencing most likely 1 through 11, like the whole first 11 chapters. So you have to kind of wonder, you have to ask the text the question, is he referring to the previous chapter, the previous thought, the previous verse, or is it the previous entire book? Um, so that therefore can always point back to different segments. And those are just two examples of that. So as you look on, on, the, on the board or in your, on your uh, notes there, here's 1 John, uh, John 1.5-7. What are some of the elements or different, different things you observe in this particular text, as you look at it, start pointing out some of the things you just you see, some of the tools, some maybe maybe repeated words, contrasts, imagery. What do you see? Contrast: God is light and darkness. All right, contrast. Yeah, God is light, and there's no darkness, so he's making that contrast between the two. Okay. This is the message. Almost like a therefore. What, what is the message? Right, so as we get to go back to the previous, uh, you're very good, because I put that, I, I put in five, one through, 5 through 7 just to see if you'd catch that. Good. That's right, you go back to the previous part. Yep. Common words of darkness and fellowship. Right, darkness and fellowship, light as well. And those, those are words that you'll find you read First John. Guess what? Those are major themes. <laughs> They're repeated over and over again. Whenever you see something repeated at the beginning of a book, most likely... That is going to be a, a driving theme throughout that, that letter or book. What else do you see? 
points to Jesus when it's all about Jesus. Right, yep. Wait. Cause and effect. Yeah. Okay. Cause and effect. What cause and effect do you see? Yep. Yeah. You got your if, if we say, right? But if we, if we don't do, if we walk in a light, we have fellowship. If we don't, we lie. Yeah. Yeah. If, if if we do, or So you see, I mean, we, we can, you can sit and look at these and fill out. You can go word by word. You can make connections. You can go through those. I mean, it's kind of like even looking at all the all the hymns and he himself. You see a lot of rep, uh, a lot of repetition there with God. Um, it's like if you go to Ephesians one and you read Ephesians one, there's a lot of he and him and uh, and God references. And I, I remember early on in my walk, I remember that was one of the biggest. I remember that observation I made, and I still got my old Bible with all my circles. I circled every time he or him or God was mentioned. And like the first 14 verse, I think it's 50 references to God. And I'm going, oh, I think that's a major part of this Ephesians chapter 1 here. I mean, this is like, this is about, this whole salvation thing is about God. And that was like, it blew my mind. Just having that one observation, just seeing how, how, how much he's kept being repeated over and over and over and over again uh, in that way. Good. All right. Let's talk about genre for a moment. I know this is some grammar stuff, but this is all part of, we're going to teach and preach scripture, it's a book, it's literature. Um, literary genre can, can lead us to, um, if we don't understand, literary genre, we're talking about the category, or the kind of writing. You realize that the Bible is a book, it is literature, but it, it is different forms of literature throughout it. And what form of literature you are in will determine some of your process of observations and also your process of interpretation, Okay. So there's four four groups, four groupings, and sometimes people branch out and make a little bit bigger groupings, but really four major ones. Uh, the first one is a narrative, and so you know, what's important to know about the narrative here, uh, these are texts that communicate by telling a story, um, and so there's characters, there's events, um, you know, it, it, it's 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 a powerful tool for teaching. You can if you can have people. Uh, put themselves in the sandals or shoes of the person that you're, that's in the story, if you have them sense and feel what that person feels, that will go a long ways of communicating what the truth is. Um, another one that communicates truth indirectly to the reader, so you need to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. Okay? So narrative is a descriptive passage. I mean, it's just telling you a story. Um, it's not prescriptive. Is that, you know, when, pre, when I say prescriptive, you think of pre, like a prescription, right? It's... Um, a prescriptive is going to be um, a, a, a requirement or a demand or a command being given. So a lot of the New Testament epistles we'll talk about are prescriptive. You know, do not be conformed to this world. That's prescriptive. Moses, you know, mom goes by the lake and puts the baby in the basket. Well, that's descriptive. That's not, that's not for me to do something. It's telling me a story. Now, there's implications from the story, but we've got to be careful that you're and the reason that's, that's important is because if you're in a descriptive passage, and this is, a, I'll give you a good one, go to Acts. A lot of descriptive stuff in Acts. 
teachers get off on the wrong path in Acts because they say, well, that happened, therefore, you know, that, that's what we need to do. It's like, well, just because it, it happened doesn't mean that's what we are to do, right? And so you get to issues, you know, um, people do that with, you know, what Jesus said, you know, could do all these miracles. It's like, well, yeah, that was describing us what he could do. It's not telling us what, what we're supposed to do or can do. So you just got to be careful where you are in the passage to make sure you don't, because something is said or done in a narrative doesn't automatically mean that's what our audience is to do. Yeah, Jared. I was just saying maybe, you know, it seems like some people would want to allegorize some of that, just, you know, try to make something super spiritual. It's not even what it's meant. It's just the narrative, right? Right. And it's just what it is. Yep. Yep. Then we'll get to that in a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about allegory. Yeah, we'll get there. Pastor, do you, do you find that within a book the, the genre may change? Yes. I'm going to give you an example here in a minute. I think all of them in one particular chapter actually meet. So that's why it's always you got you got to ask what's going on there. So this includes a lot of times, um, so the parables, the biographies, genealogies, stories that you see throughout Scripture, places like Genesis, Samuel, Matthew are examples of a large portion of narrative is devoted in those books. Uh, number two, poetry. Uh, these are... Uh, a text in which language is used to create intellectual, emotional, spiritual responses. Meaning, sound, rhythm is being used uh, in those. Uh, a lot of use of imagery and symbols to convey meaning. So Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Right? Yeah, okay, I, I know he's getting that there, right? Um, we, we find imagery in, uh, being conveyed in those ways. Uh, communicates truth in word pictures. Expresses emotions and feelings. Again, the Psalms are, are full of this. And again, a lot of it's in the Old Testament, you'll find there. Um, number three, teaching. This is that, uh, another word for that is didactic portions of Scripture. Um, these are the texts that communicate a logical sequence of ideas. We, we like these teaching-wise because it's kind of laid out for us. Paul's very logical in his thought process and how he goes through things. Um, it features commands and very specific instructions. Again, that's that can be easy or hard. I personally would rather teach narrative than teach these, um, because a lot of times the narrative provides me with a picture. You know, I can I can paint the these instructions. Sometimes can be hard because it's like, well, it just said don't be conformed to the world, so don't be conformed. Now I got to work. To me, I got to work harder to help that kind of bring it home and help understand that, because there's no picture given to me uh, to do that. Uh, so communicates truth directly to the reader. It's just straightforward. It is what it is. Again, prescriptive instead of descriptive uh, in those ways. Uh, includes arguments, letters, sermons, speeches. Uh, the book of Hebrews is full of this, um, this kind of material. Again, Romans, Hebrews, First Peter are good examples of that. Last little grouping here is uh, the prophetic passages. Uh, these are texts that give declarations of God's will and purpose, mostly for the future. Uh, another word sometimes is used as apocalyptic can be used for that. Uh, communicates previously unknown truth or maybe um, un, un, uh, maybe un, unclear in some ways. Um, a lot of beholds, you know, behold this. A lot of look uh, is used in those those passages. Uh, involves symbolic language and events to reveal truth. So you have things like the valley of dry bones or the dragon and the woman swallowing in Revelation 12, right? And there's 
a lot of imagery. These can be really hard to teach um, because you're trying to figure out what the actual meaning is first and then try to convey that. Um, includes the final 17 books of the Old Testament and the final one of the New Testament. <coughs> so anyway, so it's important to know where you are in, the, in a particular passage, what genre you're in. And, and there's a lot of cults, for example, that violate this very principle and get, all, and get into where they are at. So the Mormons are a good example of that. They'll take, um, or even the Jehovah's Witnesses I've, I've had conversations with, they'll go to like Proverbs 8, and they'll find where it talks about wisdom being created. And they'll say, like, well, that's, that's Jesus. He's been, you know, he's talking about how he was created at the beginning of the world. He's a created being. And you're like, what? Like, that's, a poet, that's poetry. That's, that's a wisdom literature. That, you can't pull that from that passage. It's a violation of how that passage was to be, writ- be understood. It was written to talk about wisdom. That's what it says. And it's talking about, it's a, it's a personification of wisdom, not the person of Christ. Sometimes Mormons will go into a lot of the physical nature uh, and like Isaiah, when it talks about God's strong hand or things like that, and they'll say, like, well, see, he had a body, and he's human, and he's not God. And there's a lot of kind of arguments they'll use in a wrong genre of Scripture, and they'll pull those out. And so it's important that we know where we are. Uh, and as I said earlier, you can go to, like, Deuteronomy, uh, for example. Like, the book of Deuteronomy, you, can, you have all four of these take place. All four of these genres kind of weave in and out. Deuteronomy 32... Um, is, uh, is full of poetry. Most of the book is narrative. And then 34 is um, getting to some of the prophetic stuff too. And so there's all kinds of different genres going on in a particular book. So you always have to ask the question, okay, so where, where am I at in this particular place? Where, where, what's going on in this, in this way? Same with the Gospels can be like that too uh, at portions. All right, so that's just kind of observations. We're just asking the questions, um, very important questions of the text as we work through it. Uh, how do we practice interpretation? And uh, the key principle here is there's only one interpretation of every passage of Scripture, while there may be many applications. Okay? So only one interpret- there's not multiple interpretations of the passage. There is only one meaning in the text. And that, that's the humbling part about being a teacher of Scripture. I need to get it right. What actually is the meaning of this text? Now, there's, I, can con- I can present it in many different ways. Um, I can I can apply it in a hundred different ways, but the meaning is only one there, uh, and so I want to make sure that I'm I'm getting that correct. Okay, so to do that, we got to consider context, we got to consider grammar, culture, history. Um, it's important to remember, and I'll say this again, going back to the Bible, it's it's a piece of literature. Okay, it is. It is theological. We understand God's inherent, infallible word. Like we, we understand that inspired. But always remember, too, it is a piece of literature. So don't overlook the way in which it was to be understood as a book. So, so a lot of times you can get into kind of really mysterious meanings and import things into passages and like, no, okay, this, is, this was written to be understood uh, in that way. So seek the normal, natural meaning of the text. Um, it should be read and interpreted as literature. Uh, beware of the, you know, the, the unique and hidden meanings in the passage. Again, if you come up with something that, a meaning of a passage, and you're the only one that has ever found that, odds are you're probably wrong. I hate to tell you that, but you're probably wrong. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's very, it, 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 there's a lot of history going on behind us of people who study the Bible in that way too, so we'll be careful of that.
Okay. So, uh, so question five is, is we have to have good hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is a study of correct methods of interpretation, science of interpreting what an author has written. We apply hermeneutics in every form of literature. Um, we, we, we apply basic hermeneutics that we do to other portions of scripture, uh, other, other literature, just like we do scripture. So that's why I'm saying we've got to remember it's a, it is a piece of literature. We approach it um, in that way. All right? So, a few principles we'll list off for you. And some of these in the beginning, I'll just kind of zoom through pretty quickly because we kind of conveyed them. I've talked about this before. Praying principle. This is the, we're, we, didn't, we don't pray, we open our Bible and go, God help me, and then just work. During the entire process of studying and interpreting, I'm always talking to God. I'm always having a conversation. I know, again, I told you, if you came to my office, you'd think I'm probably crazy, I'm talking to myself. I'm not. I'm just, I'm just constantly asking God questions as I'm looking at the text as I'm walking through it. So always remembering uh, that conversation with God as we're working through it. It's not something we just do before we study the Bible. It's something we continue to do as we study the Bible. And it's even something you do as you're teaching and preaching it as well. Still a continual, and even when you're done, you're asking God for fruit from the time in which you've labored. Okay? Letter B, uh, I call it contemplative. Um, this is... Um, practice of called solitude and silence. And what this is, is really, we're talking about solitude. This is a solitude, I'm, I'm trying to free myself from the distractions. Um, finding, if you're going to study the scriptures to teach them, you do, and I know sometimes if you have, when I had little kids, this was easier said than done. But finding a place where you can be in quiet and you can focus. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of guys want to go study like at Starbucks and you know, and, and things like that, and I'm like, I, I could never do that. Like, I needed my own quiet space. Um, I was one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite guys in church history was John Patton, and he had he had uh, he had a guy, he had a place. His dad had a place underneath the stairs <laughs> that when he went in, everybody, all the kids knew, like, leave that alone. He's going to his his place underneath the stairs uh, to talk to God and to and to study the scriptures. And so, it's just finding that solitary time. Uh, to get out, uh, Jesus did that. We see it throughout the Gospels. A lot of times he would go, uh, Mark one thirty-five, rose early and went off uh, by himself to the mountain there. And so um, silence is the other part of that is I'm just trying to free myself uh, from distractions of, of my own engine running. You know what I mean by that? It's like my mind is constantly running with the tasks at hand, the things that need to get done. This is that be still and know that I am God type time. God, unite my heart. Help me not to to run out uh, into all the oughts and shoulds and things that I that I uh, feel like I need to do. See uh, meditation. This is simply filling your mind up with the scriptures and just chewing on them. I always used <coughs> call it like kind of like gristle. You know, gristle like in a steak. You get the fat and you can't chew it up. You just keep chewing, chewing, chewing. It doesn't go away. That kind of thing. That's what we're doing with the scripture. We're just chewing on it. That's why I say if you can find ways to get to get that passage into your mind, whether it be like when you're driving, um, just finding little bits uh, to, to just plug it into your brain and to hear it or read it over and over again is important. So uh, in addressing the meaning of a passage, we're moving from what a passage says to what it means by what it says. So we know the significance of our observations. That's where meditation comes in. Uh, we're, we're chewing on our observations. We're continuing to chew on those, answering our, our questions that we've asked um, of the text. Okay. Uh, letter D, the, the literal principle. Um, this is the uh, 
The basic principle is if the normal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, and so don't depart into nonsense. Alright? So, if the normal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, and don't depart into nonsense. Alright? You just, Did you make this up? This no, I, I just, okay. isn't that clever? So it's, it's uh, I didn't make it up. But it, it just, just it, what's there? A lot of times you want to be nifty and cool and figure out some unique thing. Just what does it say? Don't lose that. Okay? The Bible is, it is deep. I, it is way deeper than you'll ever discover. At the same time, it's really simple. And God wants us to know him. He's not playing hide and seek. <laughs> He's not, you know, trying to, you really have to try to really work hard to find him. Um, so just, just keep that principle in mind. Again, we're looking for the literal interpretation of the passage. Um, with that, I would say at the same time is beware um, of the allegorical interpretation. We're going to be careful of that. Forcing some hidden, secret spiritual meaning that's not in the text. Um, this will lead you away from the attendant meeting. A lot of times it's pride that kind of drives us to want to be unique and find something no one else found. Um, so you want to be careful, uh, but this isn't popular anymore as it used to be, but like the whole numbers thing where people are like, well, it's the seventh verse in the passage and therefore it's special because it's this number seven is important. And, and, you know, there was some kind of like really people were into the numbers thing, you know what I'm talking about? Just be careful of that. There are, there are, there are significant numbers in scripture. I mean, there are. Just don't get crazy on some of that stuff. What is the, what is the, what was being conveyed by the, by the text Again, in the more literal fashion of that. Um, one of the examples of this, too, is like going into the Old Testament, and we'll talk about it later, even like your book, we call it Christ-centered preaching. We want to connect everything to the person of Christ. But allegory is different than what we're talking about with that. Okay? Allegory would be, for example, like I, if we go to the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of parallels made, right? Christ, the high priest, uh, the connections to the sacrifice that was made there. There's a lot of things being, parallels being made that we can go back and read and see. We also want to be careful that you don't go to the furniture, you know, in Deuteronomy, and see all the furniture that's in the in the tabernacle and go like, well, that's Jesus, and that's Jesus, and that chair is Jesus, and this is... You just want to be careful of importing um, this kind of allegorical kind of interpretation of the passage. Okay? Um... And we'll get to this a little bit later. But when I talk about, we talk about Christ in our preaching, this is the, I think of it like a, like a camera. Zoom in, zoom out. We want to take a particular word, make sure that word is in the verse, where that verse is in the paragraph, where that paragraph is in the chapter, where the chapter is in the book, where the book is in the Testament, where the Testament in the story of the whole Bible. Right? So we're always in a particular passage zooming in, but then we also want to zoom out. And the zoom out part is that Christ that are preaching going, okay, so how does this all fit into the grand big storyline of, uh, of the Bible? Okay? Letter E, grammatical principle. This is understanding the relationship between words. This is the stuff we usually don't like to do, but this is all part of teaching. Uh, it's a crucial understanding, observing verb tenses, past, present, future. Uh, modifying words, fa- phrases, pronouns, all that good stuff that we hated back in school. We had grammar. It's all really important. As a matter of fact, when I went back to, went to the seminary, I had to take English again before I could do learn Greek and Hebrew because I realized I just really failed. I didn't pay attention in English class, and I got to go back and take that class all over again uh, in order to, to take the other classes. So, so we're asking what you know. What do specific words? Um, 
specific, specific words mean. We may have uh, initial impressions, but if we have observed that a word is significant in the passage, it's often helpful to dig a little deeper on those words. So you're looking for, and in this here, we're looking for the, the main words. A lot of times your main words are going to be your verbs, right? What's the driving force? What's the movement in this passage? What's my main verb here? Uh, what's being said? And so that's going to drive, and you can start looking up those words. You have your Bible dictionaries, you have study Bibles, commentaries, things like that that will help you dig into a particular word. Uh, because a lot of times words were used for various, various contexts. And so you want to go through that. And so observing the context is, again, important for the meaning. Uh, you'll find words in the Bible like, like the word flesh or the word world. They can be different meanings in different contexts uh, in that way, often by different authors as well. So be careful not to assume too quickly that you know what a word means. Always remember, so if you're reading Peter, okay, you're studying 1 Peter, don't immediately assume because Peter uses the word justified, for example. I'll give you a good example of this. If Peter uses the word justified, or James, let's go to James actually. If James used the word justified, that just because you read that and you go like, yeah, I'm really familiar with Romans, I know exactly what justification means. And you immediately import how Paul used that word. James and Paul use the word justified in two different ways. And if you don't understand that, you'll misinterpret what James is saying. Because if you just read James as it is, just pull it out of, the, out of its passage, and it says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, you would immediately tell me that probably is not in the Bible. I just pulled that out of there. There's no way that's in the Bible. Well, it is. That's James 2.24. You're like, well, that's a contradictory passage to Romans 3.28. It says they're not justified. When we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, it seems contradictory. So much so that I remember Martin Luther actually called James... Uh, a straw epistle, and he didn't, he didn't believe it was part of Scripture. He's like, it's not part of Scripture. Like, Because it upset him, because he was like, there's no way that can be accurate. But if you go back to the passage and understand how the writer is using it in the given context, Paul is dealing with a whole different issue than James is. So James is dealing with, talking about justification as, a, as, a, as an end, what it looks like to be declared right. What does it look like as a life to be declared, declared right by God? An end. Paul is talking about it prior to that. So, so James is talking about justification as vindication, proving oneself at the judgment. That's the whole context of James 2. Remember, faith apart from works is dead. He's talking about that. Paul is using justification in the terms of regeneration, being made alive. Um, so Paul uses justification to refer to how a person gets into a relationship with God. James talks about it in the sense of what that relationship must ultimately look like to receive God's final approval in the judgment. So he's He's speaking of almost eschatology future aspects. Paul is talking about way back here at regeneration. So they're, they're talking about two different ideas um, in two different ways, using the same word. And so we always want to make sure when you see a word being used, who's using that word? What author are we talking to right now or reading about? Okay. Um, so Paul doesn't even use the word faith alone. Um, and so when, when James says faith alone, he's talking about like, well, you're Faith has to produce some sort of works. You can't just say faith alone. Um, and so it's just a, it's two different arguments, two different writers writing with two different meanings behind their words in that. So Are the words the same in that case? Or is yeah, same Greek, same same Greek words. words. So it's not, you can't just do nope. it that way. Okay. Yep, same Greek words. So that's why I say it's important to know who is writing it. <laughs> and if you read the context of James, it all kind of fits in. It makes sense in his argument. 
He's just trying to, he's arguing against somebody who's saying, well, I can just say I believe in Jesus and my life never changes. That's his, that's what he's going against. Paul's on the other side of guys who are saying, well, I'm justified, you know, I'm undeclared, I'm okay with God because I'm a good person. They're, they're, they're totally two different arguments being used. <laughs> and so, um, so that's why it's important to go back to those and ask who's the writer and what's the context of that particular writing. All right, so questions to ask. Interpretation process. How do the words in a sentence relate to each other? Um, how do sentences relate to one another? Uh, what is the author trying to say in the sentence? Um, what's the main point? Again, the main point a lot of times is going to be driven by your verbs. You want to look for it, especially if you're teaching an epistle. All right, what's the main verb in this passage? What's 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 driving, moving this this passage along? Uh, what's the one thing that unites the author's discussion in the section? Uh, how is he attempting to summarize this? How would the original writers have understood what is written? Okay, so we're going back to that. How, how would they have understood this? What would they have understood Paul saying or Peter saying, example? Um, another principle here, uh, scripture interpreting scripture principle. Uh, this is the principle that scripture is self-authenticating and clear to the rational reader and its own interpreter. So, this is the, we, we want to use scripture to interpret scripture. So if you're in a particular passage, you come to an understanding, um, it is important to, to pull back and go, okay, this belief that I have see in this passage, how does that fit into other areas? Is this, is this echoed or mirrored in other passages? There's a lot of times where you'll find your cross-references, right? You'll find other passages that support that truth. Scripture is self-authenticating. It proves itself. Um, is what we're talking about here. So you want to be looking for those other passages of Scripture that bring clarity um, and broaden and balance out what you're what you're saying in that way. Uh, contextual principle, uh, letter G, as we said before, this is uh, like like real estate, location, 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 context, context, context. Um, what is going on in that way? Uh, consider the historical, the literary, the immediate context of the passage you're studying. Uh, it's imperative if you're going to overcome the various barriers that stand between you and the ancient Near East text sitting in front of you. You have to consider what is going on in that particular context. Um, one of the violations of, uh, of context, I'll show you here in a second. All right, see this? Here's the way Vander Holyfield. Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or this one. Remember this guy? Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what that verse actually is talking about? How do you know what that verse is talking about? Look at the context and you tell me what Paul is meaning by I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is actually he talking about? What are the all things? mentioned before that he can do through him who strengthens him. What are they? I can be content. So the the, the, the point of Philippians 4.13 is not I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. And that verse is just used, it's butchered. It's just ripped out of its context so often for every type of athletic event. 
it's like that has that's not even close to the context of what that point is. The point was Paul's saying, I can through Christ I can be content with plenty or with with nothing, right? And so the whole thing is actually more economical, I guess you'd say, than it is athletic, actually, in the context. So, but you but you wouldn't know that if you don't go back and actually read the context and realize, okay, so what what actually is going on here and what's driving it's it's more I can be content in any possible economic situation God has me in is really the drive uh, behind the passage. Um, so again, context is always keen in that way. So if you go to, skip this. So if you go to, uh, do I have First Peter 5, 6 through 8 down for you? So if you go through that and you understand what, what does humility look like? It says, verse 6, humble yourselves, right? So there, there's, there's the command. And they go, let's say, what is... It's a pretty general, you know, humble myself. What does that look like? Well, keep reading the context. What's, what, is, what does it look like to humble oneself? What does what humbling oneself look like in this passage? What does it say following it? Submission. Not just submission, but what does it say? It goes on, it says right there in the passage. Humbling myself looks like what? Casting our anxieties on him. Casting our anxieties on him, right? So... Humble, humility here in this passage is defined by Peter as someone who is willing to take all the burdens and weight of the world off of my own shoulders, thinking I can, I can handle it, and put it on his shoulders, right? So that's, that's humility defined by Peter, is casting all my cares on him. Okay? Um, letter H, historical, cultural principle. Um, in order to interpret the Bible correctly, you must discern the historical setting cultural norms in which the author wrote and the recipients heard the letter for the first time. So, um, so again, historical, we want to look at the writer, the reader, the politics of what's happening, the place, the date, all of those things. Uh, we want to know when we're asking Jesus' trials, for example, who's the, who's the king that he's seeing, who's Herod, where'd he come from. Uh, from a cultural standpoint, we want to know the, the religious kind of beliefs at the time, what's happening Paul stands before Mars Hill and talks about um, God being the creator of heavens and the earth. What would they have understood the Athens uh, in that way? And so we're, we're, we're walking through, through those uh, to understand that. Um, I'm going to move to, we're out of time, redemptive principle. And for this one, I'll kind of introduce this, and then next week we'll kind of pick this up because this is kind of an important point. The... Redemptive principle here um, is basically understanding that every passage um, of Scripture has a gospel or story context to it. Uh, so the principle begins to, uh, begins to move the story of the Bible from mere facts to seeing glory, to see the personal work of Christ. So, um, so you have a, we call them a micro context or basic narrative, and then a macro context or a meta narrative passage. This is understanding, another way of putting this is understanding that every passage has its human author and divine author. There is the Spirit of God, as, Roman, as uh, John 14, 26 tells us, is his mission is to actually reveal the person of Christ to us. He will reveal all things to you. And so each passage I'm pulling back and I'm going, okay, so how does this particular passage fit into the greater story? I want to make sure, again, the camera, I want to zoom out, pull out, meta narrative is the word Big story is what it means. What's the big story? I'm in a little story. I'm in the story of David and Goliath. How does the story of David and Goliath fit into the bigger storyline of what the whole Bible is about? 
And if you don't do that, the problem becomes, you can become very, what we call, moralistic in your lesson, right? So David and Goliath can become a story about, you just need to be courageous and man up and take on the giants in your life. Well, that's an application point. But if that's all that you, you leave with, then you walk out of the room with like, okay, uh, uh, either, I can, either I can do attitude or I can't do attitude. Oh, my giants are just too big. I'll never, I'll never beat them. Or I can. I'm, I'm good enough and I'm strong enough and I can do this. Either way, the people leave your, your, your lesson with, with, with a very man-centered approach, right? Because it's all about either I can do it or I can't. If you're going to tie it into the ultimate storyline, so you're providing hope. We talked about this with Edward's sermon, right? We're providing the, the hope to do this. Another way to put it is you could say that every sermon has like four major points. I'm not saying these are the four points, but basically it goes something like this. Here's what you need to do. Here's why you can't do it. Sin nature, right? Here's who did it, speaking of Christ, and here's how you can do it now through him. If, if you heard the sermon this morning, you actually, that, you kind of heard that. You know? um, here's what you need to yep. do. Yep. Here's what you need to do. Here's why. Why you here's why you can't do it. Here's who did it. And here's how you can do it now through him. So this morning we talked about like here's what you need to do. Here's what here's how the gospel moved forward in people, the early church, how they served and how they gave up their life and all of that. That's what you that's what we need to do. Well, here's why you can't do it. Right? We're bent. We talked about that, that, that brokenness that's in us. And then we talked about, but Christ actually came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life for us. That, that's, that's, that it breaks the bent. And now, now through him, now we can be motivated to do that because of what he has done for us. Right? So we, we're now empowered and enabled. And what that does, that, that was, I'll talk about it more next week because that's a really important point. That radically altered how I preach. I'd say probably ten years ago I made that I made that shift. About ten years ago, prior to ten years ago, I just dumped information. I mean, I, I gave some good information, and I was like, "What well, is what the Bible says? It said this, do that." And, and I, I think I was accurate, hopefully. <laughs> but I, I never really felt the drive to connect it back to the gospel, and that radically changed my own. It changed everything for me personally, but it changed how I taught. And I realized that what I would do a lot of times is I could easily have people leave the lesson, either either tremendously flowing with guilt, because there's no way they're going to, they're not going to pray enough, you know, they're not going to evangelize enough, and they know it, and they feel it, and I somehow felt like I was successful if they felt that, if they walked out and they felt guilty, then yay, Spirit of God worked, and they felt guilty, I'm not saying guilt is bad, there needs to be guilt, but if that's just where I leave them, now I'm really not, I, feel, I found I'm not serving them well, because I'm not empowering them, I'm not giving them you know, if, if, if our sermon, we want to get to the heart of the person, not just the will, right? We want to affect the will, but in order to affect the will, we want to affect the heart. In order to affect the heart, we've got to expose the person to the person and glory of Christ. And when we do that, the believers are empowered and motivated to go live in light of that command. But also what happens at the same time, all the unbelievers who are listening to you, they're hearing the gospel. And the gospel is not just tacked on, you know, it's like, here's the sermon, and at the very end, it's like, okay, now everybody, if you're not a believer, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. It's kind of weaved in, right? It kind of becomes a natural ending to the story or to the point. So we'll hit that next week and kind of work through that. A lot of the last, like, four or five chapters of that book I gave you will kind of cover a lot of this method um, and what that looks like. But we'll, we'll dive into the next week, all right? Any, any final questions on that?
Okay. All right, so we'll pick up here and just kind of see how we... This always happens to me. We'll just see, see how far we can get. All right? Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, your word and how to approach it, listen, listen to it, read it, observe it, uh, ask questions of it. Uh, it's just, it's rich. God, it's deep. Um, it's so rich that we can go to a passage every day and find new things every time. Um, and so, God, I just pray that you would just fill us up with, uh, with the beauty of the scriptures, help us to communicate it in ways that people can know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All righty.